Hey, take your Bibles and turn to Nehemiah chapter 11. Nehemiah chapter 11. I've told you before that I really enjoy history, and in particular, and I am an American history buff. I enjoy visiting historic sites. I enjoy um, being in, uh, in places where something monumental took place. I enjoy reading about history. Um, and, and as you think about the history of the United States, you can't help but think about wars that have been fought uh, by the United States, both at home and abroad. Wars that were fought under the banner of the preservation of freedom, either preserving our freedom or the freedom of someone else. Now, when you, when you study great battles, you're inevitably going to hear about the leaders who led men and women into those battles. You're going to hear about the strategic moves that they made to make sure that the battle was won. Um, oftentimes, those people's names are immortalized because of the way that they cunningly outwitted the enemy and they won the battle. However, behind every single great leader is what we're going to call today, unwill, excuse me, willing unknowns. Willing unknowns. Now, I remember the first time that I ever visited uh, Arlington National Cemetery, and I've got a picture here for you to see. There's a good chance that at some point you've seen uh, Arlington, and if you haven't seen it, then you've seen pictures such as the one that I'm showing you here on the screen right now. Arlington is the kind of place that when you walk into it, you just feel the greatness of, of, the, of, of the, what has taken place. Um, you, you got some people in Arlington who are buried there who you would recognize their names. In fact, there are two former U.S. presidents who are buried in Arlington Seminary, or not Seminary, uh, Cemetery. Um, and, uh, and, and in the first service, I said, hey, listen, if you can figure out or you can remember who those two presidents are, come see me after the service and I'll give you a piece of candy. Now, here's the, here's the kicker, though. You can't go to Google on your phone to figure it out, all right? So if you, if you can figure it out or remember from middle school um, when, uh, when you learned about these presidents, then uh, come see me after the service. But there's not just famous people who are buried in Arlington. In fact, as you look at those rows of grave markers, the chances are strong that you're not going to recognize the vast majority of them. It, it might be even safe to say that you wouldn't recognize 99% of those markers because there are people who willingly committed themselves to follow their country, to serve their country, to follow their leaders into battle, and they paid a great price for doing so. They are what we could call willing unknowns. Now, we get to Nehemiah chapter 11 and chapter 12, and what we find is a list of willing unknowns. And these are people who are crucial to the advancement of God's plan. Now, we've been on this journey through the book of Nehemiah now for several months, and we're nearing the end of the journey, but we're looking at the way that God used people to rebuild a place and to revive a people. To rebuild a place and to revive a people. Now, I'm going to tell you from the very beginning here that as I was reading and studying for this message, I came across a, um, a, a book that I'd been reading anyway, but a certain chapter in this book entitled um, The Willing Unknowns by Chuck Swindoll. Now, the book itself is called Hand Me Another Brick. It's about the book uh, or the, the, the life of Nehemiah, about the story of Nehemiah. And he, in this book, communicated very, very well what I wanted to communicate with you today. So even though I'm not taking verbatim what he's saying, I am leaning heavily into that resource. And I'm, I don't do that very often, but I am leaning heavily into the resource that Chuck Swindoll gives us. Now, back in Nehemiah chapter 7, Nehemiah put some systems in place to make sure that the city operates as a city. 
Okay, so he, he instituted um, guards. He, he, said he appointed guards. He raised them up to guard the city. Um, there were religious leaders that were put in place. There were political leaders that were instated there to take care of the political scene of Jerusalem. Now, when he set those things in place, the city of Jerusalem now has everything that it needs to operate as a city except people. Now, wouldn't you think that people are pretty important in a city? Yeah, they got the leaders that were there. We're going to see that here in just a moment. But they are missing people to live in the city. So Nehemiah does something about it. In fact, Nehemiah chapter 7, we see uh, verse 4. You don't have to turn there. It's going to be on the screen for you. But here's what Nehemiah says. He says, the city was wide and large, but the people within it were few. And no houses had been rebuilt. Remember, this city had been decimated by the Babylonian army that came through many years before this. They burned the walls. The walls had not been rebuilt until Nehemiah comes back. Nobody wanted to live in this city because of that. It was defenseless. Now, um, you think about cities and you think about the importance of cities. And I think about John F. Kennedy, who, by the way, I'll go ahead and give you a hint, is one of the people that's buried in Arlington National Cemetery, okay? So you got half of it right there. So you can for sure come up with the other half, all right? Um, anyway, here's what he said about cities. He says, we will neglect our cities to our peril, for in neglecting them, we, would ne- we neglect the nation. That's how important cities are, and I agree with him in that. Now, I think it could be argued that the fabric of a nation is found in its rural areas, because it's in the rural areas in which you have crops, and you have oftentimes a, a, um, a moral stability that takes place in the rural areas that carries over into the fabric and creates the fabric of the country. However, the strength or the weakness of a nation is found in the cities. A city is weak. Oftentimes, the nation is weak. A city is strong. Oftentimes, the nation is strong. It's something that Nehemiah would have known. He would have seen that it's a problem to have a city such as Jerusalem with walls around it, but it doesn't have people living in it. So he's going to do something about it. Nehemiah chapter 11, verses 1 and 2 is where we're going to start reading. So you can read there in your Bible. Here's what it says. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Okay, so the very first line there says that the leaders are already living in the city of Jerusalem. They've made a commitment to be physically present in the place that God wants them to lead. But then we find two ways in which the city is built up in its number. First of all, they cast lots. They say, okay, um, one out of ten people have to come, families have to come live in the city. It's kind of like a draft. Some of you have lived through periods in which the draft has been enacted here in our country, where if your name is called, you go serve your country. It's the very same idea here with the calling of people to come live in Jerusalem. One-tenth of the people are selected that way. Now, there's another way in which the city is built up. In verse 2 there, we find that some people volunteered to go live in Jerusalem. So on top of the 10% that are already designated as going to live there, you now have others who made the choice to go live in Jerusalem. Now listen, both of these groups of people made a heavy sacrifice. They left their homes. If they're farmers, they left their crops. Uh, They left their extended families to move to a city. And all they're taking with them is their possessions and their immediate family. And they're moving to a city that doesn't even have a home built for them yet. They have to build their own home when they get there. That's a sacrifice that they are making. 
They are willing unknowns. They are willing unknowns. Now, as you continue reading all the way through chapter 11 and the first 26 verses there, chapter 12, you find the names of the leaders of the households from the different families who ended up living there in Jerusalem. Now, out of all these names that are listed there, there's a lot of them. I'll encourage you to read them sometime. I'm not going to read all of them for you today because just trying to pronounce them, I would be here all morning long, okay? It's difficult to read sometimes, but I would encourage you to read them. But, but all these names that are listed are not listed a single time anywhere else in the entire Bible. This is the only time they are listed. But in listing these names, because Nehemiah is the one that listed them out, I believe that he was showing his appreciation for every individual that made the decision to sacrifice for the good of the city of Jerusalem, for the good of the kingdom of God. And as I read that, I also am reminded of the fact that our Heavenly Father sees and records what His children do as they serve Him. So even if nobody else sees it, then He sees it. We're going to talk more about that here in just a moment. Now, as we look at chapter 11 and the beginning of chapter 12, there's five specific groups of people who willingly gave of something. All right, they gave something. The first one we've talked about already, these are the ones who are willingly moving into the city. All right, they, they, they sacrificially made the choice to go be where God is calling them to live. But then the second group of people who gave something are those who worked in the temple. It's those who worked in the temple. Let's read uh, chapter 11, and I'm going to skim through verses 10 through 12, okay, of the priest. And then it lists out the names of several of the priests there. Ruler of the house of God and their brothers who did the work of the house. And then there's a number right there, 822. All right? There's 822 employees of the temple. Their job is to make sure that the temple is taken care of and that they fulfilled the requirements of God's law when it came to the temple. You see, God had given them a set of guidelines to live by when it came to caring for the temple, the cleanliness standards, the way they're to go about sacrifices. And these 822 employees of the temple, who work, people who worked in the temple, are there to make sure that God's law was followed. Right? Last week we talked a little bit about the, the care that was to be given to the house of God. You remember we talked about how we are to take care of the, the, the physical building that God has given us. This was the spiritual place where God chose to dwell, the temple there in Jerusalem. They were to take care of that very well. And these were the people who made sure it was cared for well. All right, here's the third group of people who willingly gave something. And that is those who were in charge of the outside work of the house of God. Now, I think about that, and I think landscaping, right? All right, so you got people who work inside the temple, then you got people who work outside the temple. But it's a whole lot deeper than that. This is not just landscaping. This is the civil responsibilities. These are people who step up and say, I'm going to take care of this or this or this when it comes to work outside of the temple. These are the judges. These are the civil leaders. These are the ones who are the farmers, the tradesmen. They're all working outside the temple to make sure that the city as a whole is cared for well, now, as I think about this group of people, I also think about how it's probably referring to the willing unknowns who picked up the slack. So if something is not being done, they stepped in and said, I'm going to do that job. I'm going to step in and fill the gap and get it done. Our church has got people that, like this. Oftentimes, I'm, I'm here during the week and I see other people who come and they're doing a job that, that nobody would have really even thought about doing. But they say, you know what, I, I can take care of that. And they do it. And I'm thankful for that. You have other people who serve in, in a variety of ways, and maybe it's not here on this physical location, but they're serving God in a variety of ways. It's a special, special thing. 
Now, the fourth group of people that willingly gave something was those who prayed. Those who prayed. I love this one. Look at verse 17. And Mataniah, the son of Micah, son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. Okay, so Mataniah, and I believe by context of what was being talked about here in this passage, is described as a man of prayer. And here's what what they say. Nehemiah writes this. He says, he was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. He's talking about a man who was committed to prayer. It's a man who thought, my job is to pray. Now, this one, out of all these groups, excites me the most. Partly because of the fact that prayer changes things. If nothing else, it changes me when I pray. Evidently, this group of people were so convinced that prayer was vital to life that they committed themselves to it and they were known for committing themselves to it. Samuel Chadwick wrote a book years, many years ago entitled The Path of Prayer. And here's a quote that he's got about prayer in that book. He says, prayer turns ordinary mortals into men of power. It brings power. It brings fire. It brings rain. It brings life. It brings God. And he pulls every one of those illustrations there in that quote from the Bible. This is exactly what, it, what prayer brings you. Folks, every single movement of God all throughout the history of the church has begun with a person or a group of people who are committed to prayer. We are going to pray that God does something. We're going to pray that God works. We're going to pray that he shows up and he shows off as only he can. I love this. They were committed to prayer. They were willing unknowns through the ministry of prayer. How many of you have seen the movie War Room? It's a Christian film that came out several years ago. It's a pretty, pretty good movie. I, I enjoyed being able to watch it. But in that movie, there's an elderly lady who sees it as her job to pray. She can't do much else, but she can pray. She has what she calls a war room. It's a little closet. It's a dedicated prayer room. She goes in that room and she prays like you hardly ever hear anybody pray. Miss Clara is her name. Folks, we need Miss Claras in our church. We need Miss Claras in our world. People who feel like it's their job to pray. Just like Mataniah here in Nehemiah chapter 11. He considered it his job to pray. This past week, there's a pastor down in Alabama by the name of Joby Martin, and he tweeted this. He said, without the power of praying people, Nothing on this planet will ever get better. And if we ever needed to pray, it is right now. Without the power of prayer, without praying people, nothing on this planet will ever get better. And if we ever needed to pray, it is right now. Folks, if we have a conviction that prayer changes things, then we, like these people right here in Nehemiah, this group in Jerusalem, should be committed to prayer. There are a group of unknowns, Willing unknowns who gave something. And then here's the last group of people who willingly gave. And it's those who sang for the services of the house of God. Those who sang for the services of the house of God. And I'm pulling each of these straight out of Nehemiah chapter 11 and chapter 12. And I'm sure there's other things that people did. But these are very specific to what we find here. These are people who singing was their job. Okay? Singing was their job. They, they rehearsed. They, they, they led others in worship. They knew that music was so important to the worship of God that they were dedicated to it. 
For most of them, their names are not known. But as a group, as a whole, they are vital to the ministry. They're talented. They want to give of themselves in service to God. I think about the people who lead us here on, on the stage on Sunday mornings. I'm thankful for those people who lead us in worship, who lead us, who prepare our hearts to hear the word of God preached. That's exactly what they're doing every single week. I'm thankful for that. Now, you think about each of these five groups of people who willingly gave something. Their names were not known. They weren't necessarily famous people, but they were committed people. They committed themselves to the work of God. You know, a willing, a willing unknown is a person who, when you mention their name, you know, ah, I can't really put a face to that. Oftentimes they, they work, they live in obscurity. Oh, but they are vital to the work of God. So this past week I'm thinking about our church, and I'm thinking about the willing unknowns in our church as people who don't necessarily want their name known or want credit for what they are doing. But I got to thinking about everybody who's involved in making the ministry of this church take place. And, and this is not an exhaustive list by any means, and I'm not going to list specific names, but you'll get the idea. Every, Sunday, every single Sunday morning, there's at least three people who work with technology to, uh, to make sure that our services run smoothly. All right, I, I think beyond that, and I think about the seven to ten ushers and safety volunteers who are patrolling the parking lot, who are greeting us as we walk into the building, multiple maintenance personnel who are preparing and keeping this building clean. There's a pastoral staff who are efficiently backing me up. There's musicians, there's singers who passionately and skillfully help prepare our hearts to hear God's word. In a normal week, uh, not a COVID-19 week, there's Sunday school teachers. You've got everyone from, from uh, deacons to mission committee members, many other volunteers across the board who are directly involved in the ministries of the church. There's an office staff that works throughout the week to make sure that, that, um, that our operations are moving the way that they should. We've got outreach ministries that are taking place through many of you who are here in this, in this room. And on top of all of that, and what, like I said, that's not an exhaustive list, but on top of all of that, there's a host of people who are praying for our church and praying very specifically for me as I prepare and as I preach God's word. You know, every single week I have a couple of people, several people, who text me on a regular basis. Maybe it's weekly, maybe it's every couple of days. And they tell me specific ways that they are praying for me or praying for our church or praying for our nation. Those are people who are directly involved in our church, but you wouldn't know their name. I do, but, but you wouldn't know their name. They're willing unknowns. And all of this takes place just so that we can operate as the body of Christ and so the Word of God can be boldly and clearly presented to other people. Now, I think about all of that and I think about how humbling that is. And it makes me want to do my very, very best in leading and serving. And I know that I'm not alone in this ministry because we're all in this together. And it might be that I'm the one who stands in front of, of you and preaches. I might be the, the voice on the radio. I might be the voice on TV or on your mobile device as you're watching at home. But we are all in this together because the mission of God is never, ever a one-man show, ever. All of us are included in this. The design of God for the church is for it to be made up of a body of believers who are sold out to and, and, and who are doing whatever it is the Lord's calling them to do, all for the good of the church as a whole. 
Now, I've shared with you some some thoughts here, but what I want to do here in the last couple of moments is tie it all together and give you four truths to hold on to. So if you have something to write with, or maybe you pull out your phone and you take notes on your phone, feel free to do that. But in in some way, maybe you take a picture of the screen as these pop up. You can do that too. But in some way, take note of of what I'm going to present to you here, okay? Here's four truths for us to take away. Number one, your gifts make you valuable, although not necessarily famous. Your gifts make you valuable, although not necessarily famous. Folks, the Holy Spirit has gifted you as a believer with very specific gifts. And those are gifts that can only be used by you for the good of the church. Those gifts may or may not make you famous, but they absolutely make you valuable. One of the problems that we often find as pastors is that people don't know what their giftings are. Or they, maybe they have an idea what their giftings are, but they think, I have no idea what, how to use those in the ministry of the church. Oh, well, let me tell you that there is no shame whatsoever in coming to a pastor and saying, hey, listen, can you help me understand the gifts that God has given me and how they play out in our church? In fact, the book of Ephesians tells us that that is the role of the pastor, to equip the saints for the work of the ministry. That's why we're here. We would love to walk with you through that. Now, now, in thinking about this idea of your gifts make you valuable, although although not necessarily famous, I think about the words from Jesus in Matthew chapter 20 when Jesus says this, but Jesus called them to him and he said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant and whoever would be first among you must be your slave. Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, there is a great example that we can learn from the Lord in that. He came as a servant. He humbled himself, even the Bible says, to the point of death, even death on a cross. He didn't come to be famous. He was famous. He just came to obey God and what God was calling him to do using what God had given him to carry it out. You know, the same thing, is, is the same thing for us today. What makes us think that it's going to be any different for us, that, that we should not also be servants the way Jesus was a servant, following his example? Not trying to be famous, but just simply using the gifts that God has given us. Here's the next truth for you to hold on to. That is that the Lord remembers every labor done in love. The Lord remembers every labor done in love. God doesn't forget the things that we do in service to him. He's going to remember even when other people don't remember. So I think about Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, where uh, the, the writer of Hebrews says, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints, as you still do. God's not unjust in that he's going to overlook you. He's going to be faithful to see what it is that you do for him. Now, um, I think about the fact that sometimes when I'm walking into the church, it's little things that I see people do. And in fact, within the last couple of weeks, I saw somebody as they were walking into the church, there's a little piece of trash in the grass. And and I fully believe out of love for their church and out of love for it to be, wanting it to be excellent, they reached down, they picked up this little piece of trash and they threw it in the trash can. That's the kind of thing that I believe the Lord remembers. It's small, seemingly you're being faithful. Now, in serving the Lord and being a willing unknown, sometimes discouragement is going to set in. And what, I re- am I, and what I'm doing, is, is, it, is it really doing any good? 
what use is there in me continuing to do this day in and day out? But never, ever forget that the Lord remembers he doesn't forget. Here's the third um, truth that I want you to hold on to, and that is that our rewards will be based on our faithfulness, not public applause. Our rewards, talking about the rewards in heaven, will be based on our faithfulness, not public applause. There's coming a day in which we will get to heaven, and our rewards are going to be given to us based on our faithfulness. So what do we do with the resources that God gave us, that he blessed us with? In our performance-driven world, we often correlate the acknowledgement of man, the applause of man, with success. A, man, a person tells me I did a good job or gives me a hand clap or whatever, I did a good job. They don't do anything, I must have done a bad job. But that's not at all how God works, at all how God works. God is simply looking for faithfulness. In fact, once again, Jesus' words, Matthew chapter 6, he said this. He said, beware of pr- practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. In other words, what he's saying is, hey, be careful of going in front of other people and, and, and trying to be seen by them, doing all these good works. Because when you do that, you're doing it out of a selfish ambition, and God is not going to reward that. Chuck Swindoll made the statement. He said, God never checks an applause meter to measure the merit of our service or to determine our rewards. He never checks an applause meter. Oh, how high was the applause? Really high? Oh, great rewards. That's not how God works at all. He simply checks our faithfulness. And then lastly, never underestimate the importance of simply being physically present in the place where God wants you. Folks, you may not be asked to perform some dr- dramatic ministry or, um, or, or you may not be asked to do this or this or this, but simply being there, being present is a ministry. When you show up as a willing unknown, it leaves room for God to work in ways that will absolutely shock you. Now, I think about what we've talked about here. I think about all that, that, that we have gone over here in Nehemiah 11 these truths that I've given you, and I want to leave you with one story to illustrate what we've talked about, okay? Many years ago, there was a quiet older man who lived high above an Austrian village, deep in the slopes of the Alps. He was known as the keeper of the springs. Many years years earlier, the town council from the village hired the man to clear the debris upstream to ensure that the spring that flowed into the village was crystal clear. He quietly and faithfully policed the springs and removed the leaves, branches, and the silt from the fresh flow of water. The village was so beautiful that it became a well-known vacation destination. Fall and spring were particularly pretty in the village, and visitors journeyed there to see the new flowers blooming early in the year and the fall foliage late in the year. The springs provided a habitat for graceful swans that floated along the crystal-clear spring natural irrigation for farmland, and a gorgeous view for most any location in the village. After many years passed, the town council met for a semi-annual meeting. As they reviewed the budget, one of the council members noticed the salary of the barely known keeper of the springs. The treasurer of the council questioned the necessity of the old man. The springs were beautiful, and they never saw him doing his work. How were they sure he was working at all? It seemed a good place for a budget cut, so the council voted unanimously to relieve the keeper of the springs from his duties. For a little while, nothing changed, and springs still flowed beautifully through the village. In early autumn, the trees began to shed their leaves. Small branches broke off from the trees and fell into the pools. 
The leaves and branches dammed up the water and stopped the flow of the springs. Soon the spring developed a film on the surface with a yellow and brown tint. The water continued to grow darker and began to emit a foul odor. The mill wheels could not turn because of the blocked streams. The swans left and the vacationers found other places to visit. Eventually, the brackish water caused disease in the village. It did not take the town council long to see the error of their decision. They invited the keeper of the springs to come back to work and even paid him more than they did before they fired him. Within a few weeks of his return, the springs cleared up and flowed freely throughout the village once again. Folks, just because we don't see the work that others do, that doesn't mean that their work is not important and useful. Now, by the same token, just because our own work doesn't shine for the entire world to see, we shouldn't feel like what we do isn't useful and vitally important to the kingdom of God. Every one of us has a place in the kingdom of God. Every one of us has something that God is calling us to. A mission, a calling, a person, something that God's calling us to. And what he's asking for is simple faithfulness. Others may not notice what you do. Others may not see it, but it's all right. Because our God in heaven sees it. Nehemiah chapter 11, we have a bunch of unknown, willing unknowns. Are you a willing unknown It's a good thing if you are. Let's pray together. Father, um, I thank you for the way that you designed all of this to work. You knew the importance of, of being a servant. Father, Jesus showed what it was like to be a servant when he came to this earth. Father, may we likewise be servants, willing unknowns, who do things behind the scenes, who say things behind the scenes, who care for, encourage, love, work, not for the applause of men, but simply because of what you have done in redeeming us. Out of the love that we've got for you, may we do that. Our Father, we do thank you for the love that you have for us. We thank you for the time in your word today. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.